Okay, who are uh, your church's big hitters of history? Who, who would you think of as your sort of heroes uh, of church in days gone by? Uh, depending on your background, you might have different people uh, in mind. But this morning I want to say, actually, we're going to disagree uh, with a lot of the big hitters. So, for example, here we go. We've got Martin Luther. I have to get these all right. John Calvin. Uh, John Wesley. Uh, John Newton. Uh, John Knox. John Owen. They're all Johns, aren't they? Uh, John Wycliffe. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Zwingli. Uh, Athanasius. No, sorry, not Athanasius. Augustine. All the church fathers, early ones, apart from possibly not Tertullian, but that's debatable. Um, uh, Cramner. J.C. Ryle. Uh, George Whitfield. C.S. Lewis. Uh, Francis Schaeffer. Uh, and uh, Tim Keller. I wonder if any of those were your big hitters. We're, we're going to disagree with them this morning. Uh, and we're going to be with John Bunyan, C.H. Spurgeon, Billy Graham, Don Carson, and John Piper. The list on that side is a bit small. Now, there are other people we could add to them, but it really does split up that way. There are a lot more people who are going to disagree with us this morning through church history than people who are going to agree with us. So we find ourselves speaking in the minority uh, historically speaking. Uh, our statement this morning, if you're wondering what it is that's going to cause such uh, division there, is we believe uh, full immersion of believers, as a, we believe in full immersion of believers as a public witness to their faith is the best mode of baptism. But believers holding an alternative position in line with our statement of faith are welcome into membership. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. To put it really simply, we're saying we believe in believers' baptism and we don't believe uh, in infant baptism. Now, I should point out as we come to that, that actually all those people we looked at would baptise adults. That's not actually really what we're disagreeing with there, except for anybody who's in the Salvation Army. Salvation Army don't baptise anybody. Uh, but the question is to whether we do it to children as well. So if somebody converts in later age, most of those people would, would baptise them as adults. Uh, the other question we'd have is the form of baptism. Is it by pouring? Is it by sprinkling? Is it by immersion? And all sorts of different issues there. This is our series on distinctives. We're not saying this is the most important thing, but it's something that makes us distinct uh, as a church. And this morning, we're actually going to start off by looking at the alternatives uh, to that sort of simple uh, statement. The alternatives we have, uh, firstly, would be no baptism. That would be one alternative that we could have. Uh, Salvation Army, as I said, don't, don't do baptism at all. They don't do uh, the communion or Lord's Supper uh, either. Uh, they claim that it's unhelpful to sort of have these uh, traditions. And I think most of us would, would, would disagree with that. But it is another position uh, that you could have. Another position is baptismal regeneration. So that's the idea that baptism makes you uh, a Christian. And you find that in, in general culture. So I remember talking to my friends at school and you ask them if they're a Christian. And they say, oh, yeah, I was christened. And they take that to mean that that saves them, that that rescues them. You find it in Roman Catholicism, you find it in High Anglicanism as well, this idea that baptism somehow actually saves you. The act of uh, being underwater or being sprinkled with water saves you. That's an alternative position that you can hold. Infant baptism. Uh, and I want to split this into two different groups, really. One I call open infant baptism. And some Anglican, uh, United Reformed Church, Methodist churches within our own town uh, would hold to this position. And the idea there is that any child can be baptised. And it's often linked to the idea of baptismal regeneration, though not always. 
but it's sort of this idea of we'll just, we'll just baptise anybody. Um, and sometimes it's uh, linked with baptismal regeneration. Like I say sometimes it's not linked with regeneration because the churches are, churches, some, some churches who practice this are so liberal they wouldn't have regeneration at all. It's just an act that you go through. So that's another possible alternative. And then the final alternative, which we're going to look at a bit more closely as we uh, look into the word in a second, is covenant infant baptism. So that's the baptism uh, of children, of believers only. Um, And the argument really about this is, what is meant by household in the Bible? So you get phrases where it talks about households being baptised. And then the argument there, uh, there's that part of it, uh, but also there's the question then of what is baptism in the New Testament? What is it there for? Um, The answer that's most often given by covenant infant Baptists is the idea that it's replacing circumcision. So the idea really is that it's a New Testament version of circumcision. Now this morning we're not going to settle the question of the household because it's used in different ways and in the end it just goes back and forth. So, you know, one person says, well, it doesn't say that it includes children and the other person says, it doesn't say that it doesn't include children Uh, and you don't really get anywhere with that. It's used in different ways. It's more fruitful, I think, this morning to look at that other question. Is baptism the New Testament circumcision? Because if that's true, then there's an argument that it should be done to children. Uh, and this is going to be the closest to our camp, really, the, the covenant infant baptism. So we're not going to be going along with uh, open infant baptism, baptism of regeneration, no baptism. But there are people who are, are genuine Christians, the people that we put up uh, on the board there, who would hold this view of baptising uh, children of believers. So we're going to look at the arguments that apply to that idea. If it's true, is it true that circumcision uh, is replaced by baptism and therefore should be done to children like circumcision is? Uh, You wondered how we're going to get stoning in and now we're talking about circumcisions. It's really going uh, around this morning. But we're going to spend some time uh, in that. So what does the Bible say? Well, we need to really look at, first of all, baptism uh, in the New Testament. Baptism in the New Testament. There are three baptisms, really, in the New Testament. We don't often think about it that way. Uh, we had one of them this morning read out in our reading. Uh, there's John's baptism. That's what we had there, which is a baptism of repentance. That's the way uh, that it's worded. I want to say that that's not exactly the same as the baptism that we practice, for a couple of reasons. One is that it wasn't done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's clearly something different going on there. It doesn't seem to have been symbolising dying and being raised to life because that didn't seem to be the idea it seems to be more the idea of of washing Uh, baptism can the word baptizo uh, can mean that Uh, it really is a secular which means to dunk or to dip but Jesus when he washes his hands in Luke 11 38 he baptizes them so I can have the idea uh, of washing so that's John's baptism that's one that we see that is a little bit different uh, to what we practice Then also one we saw in our passage this morning was Jesus' spirit baptism. Did you notice that in our passage? It talks about, I baptise with water, he will baptise with the Holy Spirit. So really it was looking forward uh, to that spirit baptism. So if you like, John's baptism is there prefiguring or showing this spirit baptism that Jesus is going to bring. That's that's what he's saying his baptism is about. Well, what is that about? Spirit baptism. It's a bit of a confusing phrase, I think, for some people. Well, it's something that's promised in the Old Testament. 
So if you look on the back of your sheets there, you'll see Joel chapter 2, uh, 28. This is quite a famous one. And it says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, uh, and your young men shall see visions. It's the idea of the spirit being poured out on all flesh. And we see that at Pentecost, don't we? Um, <clears throat> I don't think I put it on your sheets, but there's also Ezekiel thirty-nine twenty-nine. I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Or Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. So John's baptism was actually looking forward to this spirit baptism, which is what happens when we become a Christian. Uh, I want to say sometimes in the New Testament it is separated, um, but it's always for a reason. Uh, And if you have a question about that, please do put it on a a blue slip, uh, because with all the stuff we've got to cover this morning, we're not going to go there. Um, But it's something that happens when you become a Christian. Uh, So that spirit baptism is there to symbolise becoming a Christian, having the Holy Spirit living uh, inside us. And then the third sort of baptism that we see in the New Testament is Christian baptism. And it's not symbolising one thing alone. The main picture we see in baptism is the idea of uh, death and resurrection. So going under the water and dying and then being raised to life spiritually. It's also a picture of that spirit baptism, isn't it, that we saw in the Old Testament, of being immersed in the spirit. It is used of the idea of washing clean our sin uh, as well. And the way that we do it is that it's done in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the early church, there were some people who used to do just one dunk in Father, and uh, Son and Holy Spirit. Some churches would do three dunks, one in the Father, one in the Son, one in the Holy Spirit. Uh, but that seems to have gone out of fashion. Um, but that, that's how we, we do it, isn't it? It's the name of the, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And nearly all scholars agree that it was by immersion to start with. At the beginning, people were immersed underwater. Uh, that's how it began. Pouring came in, probably because of that image of pouring out of the Spirit. But it's, it's not really the New Testament model uh, of baptism. And it's done when someone has become a Christian. That's what we see uh, in the Bible. Uh, now there's a debate, like I say, about what household means. But what I mean by that is it's done almost immediately afterwards when someone becomes a Christian. Whether it's them or to their whole household. That's what triggers this event going off. And sometimes, because of that, it's used synonymously in the Bible with becoming a Christian. So sometimes you get referred back to your baptism. But because it was done basically at the same time you became a Christian, it's another way of looking at the fact that you became a Christian. Um, uh, when two things go together, you sort of forget which one uh, comes first, if you like. So it's used sometimes in that way. And I think that's probably why we got the confused idea uh, of baptismal regeneration. Uh, because of that idea that looking back at your baptism, which really uh, was just done at the same time. So that's baptism in the New Testament. What about baptism uh, in the Old Testament? It's a bit of a, a stranger question, isn't it? Well, uh, there's the spirit baptism that we've talked about, the pouring out of the spirit. But also we get uh, types of what happened. And I want to say these aren't circumcision, but they are other things. So if you have a look uh, in your Bible at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, which uh, in the 
Uh, larger Bibles is on page 1118, 1118. Does anyone have the page number for the smaller Bible? <clears throat> 589. 589 in the smaller Bibles. <clears throat> so I'm just going to read from 18 to 22. This is, I know we're looking at the New Testament, but this is speaking about baptism in the Old Testament. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So do you see there that the flood there in the Old Testament, is, it says baptism which corresponds to this. Uh, it's that idea of uh, being washed with water, if you like, being rescued, being saved. Uh, so it's saying really the flood in the Old Testament is a sort of picture of Christian baptism. Uh, of rescue. Now again you've got that thing where they're put together um, in the sense that it's saying baptism saves you. I don't think it's saying uh, that water baptism saves you. We've been seeing we're saved by grace. But it's that idea that they, they happen together. When you become a Christian in the New Testament you get baptised. But the picture there is of the flood, this great rescuing act that God did saving eight persons. And the second example we're given of Old Testament baptism is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> That's on page 1059 in the large Bible. Does someone have the smaller Bible? Hey, everyone. 557. Okay. So it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So there we see the, the Red Sea that we've been looking at. Uh, last Sunday evening and also in life groups. That's given as a picture of, of baptism. Baptism into to Moses, uh, if you like. And again, it's the idea of a saving act, isn't it? It's God rescuing his people through water. Uh, it's pictured as that, and that is saying this applies to baptism uh, in the New Testament. I think certainly with the flood and with the Red Sea, you can almost speak of them as total immersion, can't you? Uh, with those sorts of images, they're not being sprinkled uh, with the Red Sea. Um, it's a picture of, in fact, both of them stay dry, really, so it's, it doesn't really work exactly uh, well, but it's saving through water. And they're pictures of God's rescue, and that fits with what baptism is a picture of. So that's baptism in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. What about circumcision? Is it the equivalent of circumcision? Well, what about circumcision in the Old Testament? Uh, circumcision in the Old Testament, instituted by God for Abraham, given as the sign of the covenant to Abraham, and then it continues in the law. Uh, circumcision continues on in the law of Moses. Uh, our, uh, children are to be circumcised on the eighth day. So this is done to, to children. 
Again, it was adults to begin with. So think of Abraham. He was circumcised as an adult. Um, but after that, it was children uh, of those adults. Uh, and you can kind of see, if we do go with this idea of circumcision, you can kind of see why they get this idea if, if New, New Testament circumcision is baptism. Um, but I want to say, actually, that's not what it's symbolising. So we're even told in the Old Testament what circumcision symbolises. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And it says, And the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And then that idea again is shown in the New Testament, Romans 2, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here you see, actually, circumcision is a picture of the circumcision of the heart. So even in itself, it's not symbolising baptism, if you like. It's not symbolising being uh, saved in that way. It's symbolising having your heart circumcised. It was never something merely external. So that's circumcision in the Old Testament. What about circumcision in the New Testament? Well, in Galatians, it's argued against for believers. Believers shouldn't be circumcised. I could give you a list of quotes from Galatians, but if you have questions, just go home and read Galatians and see what it says. But interestingly, nowhere in Galatians does Paul say, don't be circumcised because you've been baptised or because it's a replacement of baptism. He never goes uh, down that line. Uh, it goes down all sorts of other lines, but he doesn't go down the line of it's been replaced by baptism. Which, if you think, if, he, if it has been, that would be a really easy way to go, wouldn't it? But he doesn't. But baptism in the rest of the New Testament is seen as essentially neutral. Uh, sorry, not baptism. Uh, get the right word. Circumcision in the New Testament is seen as essentially neutral. It doesn't matter whether you are or whether you aren't in the physicality. It depends what you think it means. So Timothy, for example, is circumcised by Paul so that he can go and speak to, to Jews who wouldn't speak to him if he was uncircumcised. But what is spoken against in the New Testament is the compulsion to be circumcised. So the New Testament never tells us to be circumcised in the way that it tells us to be baptised. And the people who make circumcision a compulsion are called false teachers and people are told to stay away from them. So what is the New Testament circumcision then? Well, it's that circumcision of the heart, isn't it? It's the putting off of sin. So look at Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, which is on the back of your sheet. It says, In him also you were circumcised. This is talking about Christians. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, some people take this to be an equation between circumcision and baptism. This is the closest that you get in the New Testament. So they see having been circumcised, having been baptised, buried with him in baptism. But I want to argue, it would be strange to put it that way, if uh, you look at verse 11 carefully. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That would be very strange if then in the next verse he's saying, but you've been baptised with hands, wouldn't it? So he seems to be saying this is something that is not physical that we're talking about here that's happening. Circumcision without hands. So if he's then talking about baptism, that's something that's done with hands. So it just doesn't seem to fit 
better to think of it as just explaining that verse there by putting off the body of flesh. The idea of, of, of growing in our godliness, in, in putting off our sinfulness. So he's linked with the fact that we're Christians, but it's not directly applicable to baptism. So he's talking about two different things here. He's talking about circumcision first, and then he's talking about baptism second. I can see quite a lot of confused faces, so do come and do put questions on blue slips and speak to me afterwards. But just to further complicate things, uh, I want to say, even if it's not New Testament circumcision, it's still not that simple, is it? Uh, so, for example, there were children and babies who passed through the Red Sea. Uh, there was a whole household who was saved in the flood. Um, so, the question really has to come down to how do we view the whole Bible? Just that, leave all that stuff to one side for a second, if, it, if it's confusing you. The question needs to come, to what extent is the New Testament a continuity and a discontinuity of the Old Testament? We all agree that there's some continuity and discontinuity, but how far does it go? So if we want to support our view of believers' baptism, our view should be consistent. There should be differences between the Old and the New Testament. We've begun to see that in Hebrews, haven't we? As God's spoken in the past in these ways, but now in his son, he's done something different. And I want to argue that the general shape of scripture, going along with the view of baptism, and consistent with the view of baptism, is the idea of promise in the Old Testament and fulfilment in the New. Type and antitype, shadow and reality. And that means we should expect to find differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some systems, like the one that Calvin proposed, seem to flatten scripture uh, quite a lot. The idea that they see very little difference between the Old and New Testament. And it's that then, the idea that there must be a New Testament uh, equivalent of circumcision that somehow it carries on. So it's no surprise if you have that flat system that you end up with infant baptism as your conclusion uh, to that system. Now I want to say Calvin's system of sort of flattening scriptures does have its merits. So it does show us that actually we're saved by grace all the way through. But it's not easy to just take believers' baptism and add it on to Calvin's system. It's quite alien to it. So we can have it, but we struggle to add believers' baptism to it if we flatten scripture and say there aren't really that many differences between the Old and New Testament. I want to say that some traditional Baptists have taken it too far in the differences between Old and New Testaments. So many in the States, especially who are Baptists, are dispensationalists. That means they split history into different chunks. Uh, and this is the chunk where we have baptism, if you like. Um, but I think they see too much difference between the Old and New Testaments. I think actually we need some, something in the middle, really. And I think this promise fulfillment model is the best way to see it. So it's not flat like Calvin's system, but it's not sort of extreme slices like dispensationalism. And if we view scripture in this way, then believers' baptism is not going to be so alien but just a fulfilment of what's gone before. We'll expect to find something different in baptism from what we see in the Old Testament. So it's the same, but it's different. And I think this way will help us see that baptism uh, is, is the, it's comfortable with Scripture, if you like. It fits with what's there. Okay, so that's what the Bible says. Because this is the last one, you can do blue slips, and I'll see how many we get next week to see whether we answer them or whether I just email you. But one sort of glaring question uh, from this for us this morning is what about adults? This, that's frequently asked questions in case, if you didn't know what FAQ uh, sounds like. It's an um, internet term. Uh, so this is what I think you're probably mostly thinking. 
uh, in terms of baptism this morning. What about adults who've been christened as children? What do we do with those circumstances there? What if we've got people who want to be uh, members of our church who've been christened as children? Well, I want to say it depends on the circumstances. If it's children of unbelieving parents, then I think that that goes with that open uh, uh, open baptism idea, infant baptism we had. I want to say in a sense that's a no-brainer because whatever you think about baptism, that wasn't really a a real baptism. The the promises that were being made uh, weren't intended to be kept. So, for example, in my own case, I was baptised when I was... Uh, well, I was, <laughs> I had water put on me when I was, uh, eight months old, uh, but my parents aren't believers. Uh, so I got rebaptized, well, no, I got baptized, uh, when I was 16 years old. Uh, because I decided, well, my parents said they were going to bring me up as a Christian, uh, they made these promises, but actually, it meant nothing. Um, interestingly, the, the only time my parents went to that church was for a pantomime, uh, <laughs> once a year. Um, so it, it wasn't right. So I think in those sorts of circumstances, Actually, you weren't baptised in the first place. You need to get baptised. I think it gets a bit more complicated when you have children of believing parents. What we have to decide, thinking of what we've seen of the whole of Scripture, is whether we consider infant baptism, substandard baptism, or not baptism at all. And I think all of us would treat some forms of baptism as substandard but valid. Let me show you what I mean. What about an elderly lady? Uh, who becomes a Christian on her deathbed. Now, the model we've, we've seen in the Bible it would be total immersion uh, in water. I don't think that we would do that with a lady uh, on her deathbed in her 90s. Would it be okay in those circumstances to pour or sprinkle rather than immerse? I think probably most of us would say that was okay. It's not ideal. It's not the best. It's substandard. But we could sort of deal with that. We could cope with it. Uh, what about someone who's been a Christian for 50 years or more and they've not been baptised? That doesn't seem to be a biblical model, does it? We wouldn't like that. We'd actually probably suggest they want to get baptised, wouldn't we? But that distance that we already have between being baptised, uh, becoming a Christian and being baptised isn't really a, an ideal model either. It's not a biblical model. So all of us sort of cope with some form of baptism that isn't quite what the New Testament explains. Now, those are extraneous circumstances, uh, and you shouldn't really make rules from them, but they do get to the essence of the question. If it's substandard but actual baptism, what do we do if we want to go down that line? So think about the reformers that we saw uh, up on the screen, you know, Luther, Calvin. They were baptised as Roman Catholics, as children, but they didn't see the need to be baptised again, interestingly. The groups that did see themselves baptised again were a group called the Anabaptists, who decided that it wasn't good enough uh, and wanted to be baptised again. Because if it's not baptism, then it needs to happen, doesn't it, for the first time. That's why I said I wasn't really baptised as an eight-month-year-old. I was baptised as a 16-year-old. And I don't think we'd want to accept unbaptised members. But we need to decide what counts as baptism. Are there some forms that aren't biblical but possible? in some circumstances. Because is it our model, um, is our model the only one that we believe counts before God as baptism? That's what we have to decide. Should we consider the long list of Christians that we saw, the pictures of all those uh, godly men from the past, as being unbaptized believers? 
Because if we go down the line that it's not baptism at all, that's what we're saying. And probably we should exclude them from membership, if that was true. So we couldn't have uh, George Whitfield as a member, or John Calvin, or Luther, or J.C. Ryle, or any of those people as members of our church. So I think this is where we need a bit of humility. Whatever the theological arguments, it is generally agreed that this is a secondary issue. This isn't, of all the things we could disagree on, this isn't really the big one. Great gospel men and women of the past have disagreed on this, on both sides. So I believe we need to welcome people from particular stances, not all the different alternatives of baptism, but welcome them into membership. And this is basically Bethel's stance already at the moment. Uh, It's clumsily worded uh, in a members' meeting from the mid-90s, but it was adopted as a church that we would welcome people uh, who haven't been baptised as adults, but have been baptised as children in specific circumstances, uh, as members. Now, as we've looked through our our statements and things, it actually turns out with this that our our constitution therefore contradicts itself. Uh, Somebody helpfully emailed and, and pointed that out to us. Um, that at the moment we, we do have people who haven't been baptised as adults. But our constitution states that you have to be, and our constitution states that that's what we believe. So we didn't initially set out to, to want to change the constitution, but it might be actually we'll need to do that, just to be consistent with, even with where we are already. So I don't think it's in a good state to be uh, as a church to be and to have a constitution that we're not applying uh, as it's written. Uh, so Mike and I will be talking to members about that at the next members' meeting. But I do want to argue that welcoming people from a different stance in this case uh, is a good thing. Actually, having this as a distinctive allows us to remain Baptist, uh, allows us to remain with our convictions while not forcing our covenant pedo-Baptist brothers and sisters to find their membership elsewhere. Otley isn't a very big town. If we're really saying you can't be a member of our church, we're really saying you need to be a member somewhere else. Do we need to have a Bethel that baptises people as adults and a Bethel that baptises people as children? I don't think that's a good circumstance to be in. But having doing it this way, having it as a distinctive but not uh, insisting on it for membership, means that we could have Martin Luther as a member, but we wouldn't baptise his children. That's really what it means. If he's happy to come here, uh, I'm sure he would be, um, then we're happy as long as he's not going to be wanting to baptise his children. So what are the implications then? Well, it means that we baptise adults on profession of faith. That may include older children, but it will differ for each child depending on their development. And this morning, if you haven't been baptised, you should get baptised. That's the clear teaching of scripture. Uh, It's complicated if you've been uh, through a process as a child, but I think you want to think and pray that through. Is it, is it something that actually counted, or do you need to be baptised for the first time? So that's one implication. You need to be baptised if you haven't been baptised. The second implication is that we don't baptise babies. Period, as our American cousins would say. It's not going to happen at Bethel. And I want to make that clear, uh, because it has to be clear. If, if we're going to uh, welcome people of different opinions, then we need to be clear on where we stand. We're not going to be baptising children at Bethel. But, thirdly, I want to say we, we want to welcome covenant pedo-baptists uh, and those baptised as children by believing parents into membership. We're not saying that we agree with them, but we are saying that the Bible calls us to welcome people of different opinions. 
as long as they're happy with where our stance is, as long as they're okay to take that. So we are saying that some folks will disagree with us on this, but that's okay. What counts actually really is working together for the gospel and not letting this this split us into two different groups uh, that won't work with each other. So finally, where do we go next as we finish this series? Well, thank you for being up for talking. I've had some brilliant discussions the last eight weeks. Uh, I had some brilliant blue slip questions. I realise I never answered my blue slip questions. They're about stoning. I was going to say, in the, <laughs> in the shape of Scripture, uh, we see there are differences between the Old and New Testament. So, Old Testament, stoning, yes. New Testament, stoning, no. You see Jesus saying, don't stone uh, the, the lady that's caught in adultery, for example. Um, but you'd expect to find those differences if that's the shape of Scripture. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so thanks for giving feedback and suggestions. Uh, like I say, these are only our draft uh, proposals. We are going to go back and look at them again. Thank you for people who've emailed suggestions of rewordings that might be a little bit more helpful. The idea here really was to get the discussion going so that we could make this decision together as a church. Uh, Mike and I will go and take what's been said, we'll think and pray through it, and we're going to bring it back to the church members meeting in January. Uh, so... Uh, it might be complicated, since we might have to change the constitution to make it consistent. Um, but that's going to be the next stage. I want to say, if you want to be involved in that process and you're not a member, think about becoming a member before January, so you can actually join in uh, and get uh, stuck into where we are as a church, where we want to go. Uh, because there are wonderful things we see. I've, I've enjoyed getting stuck into God's word and looking at some of the issues that we don't often uh, talk about. Uh, but we want to get this right. So do think, do pray. Uh, as we go, uh, <clears throat> and do think through and do talk. Don't don't think this is the end of the process. It's it's just sort of beginning. So let me pray for us as we we do that, and then we're going to sing uh, to close, and then head off. So we'll be heading off to the uh, Victorian Fair. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word. Father, thank you for the wonderful things that are written in it. Father, thank you that we can never exhaust all the things that there are in your word to talk about. Uh, to think about, to discuss, to pray about. Uh, So, Father, pray that you be with us as we think through um, how we want to go forward, Father, whether these are the right distinctives for our church, whether we want to reword them, whether we want to uh, change them. Father, we just want you to be glorified uh, in Otley and Ilkley. Father, we want your church to grow, uh, that you might be uh, glorified through having more and more worshippers of you. Father, we want to be clear. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us. uh, Now give us the wisdom that we need. Uh, And Father, pray that all be done to your glory. Pray for the Victorian Fair again this afternoon. uh, And Father, pray you be with us as we uh, take uh, this message out to uh, the people of Otley. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.